What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Andre Barish Pulitz is a chess grandmaster and has a PhD in economics. In this conversation, we talk about chess, talk about machine learning, artificial intelligence, cheating. We talk about things like Fisher Random Chess, crypto, Bitcoin, the best books if you want to get better at understanding the game of chess, and also how he thinks about the macro economy, different financial assets, and given that he is Ukrainian, what's going on with the Russia-Ukraine conflict. I really enjoyed this conversation with Andre, and I hope that you all enjoy it as well. In this episode, there's a ton to get through, and one of the key themes is the idea of critical thinking, which is obviously an important topic. I really enjoyed this conversation with Andre, and I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I first want to talk about our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Exodus. Accessing Web3 across multiple networks just got a hell of a lot easier. Exodus is one of the most popular crypto wallets for mobile and desktop, and they just added Chrome and Brave web browsers to the lineup. The new Exodus Web3 wallet is a multi-chain browser extension that lets you safely navigate Web3 and DeFi apps on Ethereum, Solana, and Algorand from one wallet. You can manage mint and sell NFTs on multiple networks in that same wallet. You can swap Sol and ETH tokens natively right within the extension. And if you ever hit a snag, world-class customer support is available 24-7. More of your favorite chains are on the way. So run, don't walk to exodus.com slash pomp to download the Exodus Web3 wallet right now. That's exodus.com slash pomp. Go check them out today. This episode is brought to you by Alto IRA. They can help you invest in Bitcoin and crypto in a tax-advantaged way. That helps you preserve your hard-earned money. Alto's Crypto IRA lets you invest in Bitcoin and over 200 other different coins and tokens, and it has all the same tax advantages of your traditional IRA. There's no setup or account fees, and it's all you need to do, invest in crypto tax-free. Let me repeat that again. You can invest in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies tax-free. So are you ready to take your investments to the next level? Diversify like the pros and trade without tax headaches. Open an Alto Crypto IRA to invest in Bitcoin and crypto tax-free. Go to altoira.com slash pomp. That's A-L-T-O-I-R-A dot com slash pomp. Start investing today. This episode is brought to you by LMAX Digital, the number one institutional crypto exchange. They offer clients the deepest pool of liquidity, and they have a 100% uptime track record through all the volatility spikes. LMAX Group's liquidity relationships and ultra-low latency technology means that LMAX Digital is the market-leading solution for institutions across crypto trading and custodial services. LMAX Digital, secure, liquid, and trusted. Go learn more at lmaxdigital.com slash pomp. Again, that's lmaxdigital.com slash pomp. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Uh, Not every day that I get to talk to a chess grandmaster. And I thought a great place to start is how many hours do you think that you have obsessed over the game of chess to actually reach the level uh, of expertise that you now have? Well, that's a tough question, Uh, really. I've never counted those hours. Uh, You know, maybe maybe I will go a little sidewise. Uh, 
I played tennis a little, but I was so bad in it also. But I just remember that my coach, he said that to master the game, you probably need to make uh, one million uh, hits. And uh, and that just, you know, a round number just to say like, okay, hey, you, you can claim that you, you know how to play tennis if you made one million hits. But in chess, it's really difficult to say how much time it takes uh, for a person to, to become a grandmaster. Uh, Years-wise, well, it took me since I began when I was eight. And I, I became a grandmaster when I was uh, 22. So you can have like 14 years. Yeah. How many hours do you think you were playing per day between like ages like eight and 15? So kind of when you were younger and you didn't have lots of other life responsibilities, like how many hours would you play? Well, uh, not many to be honest. So for me, it took like maybe like two, three hours a day and that was sufficiently enough. Uh, I, I would say that uh, more important here is, is, is intensity with which you, you do this. So it's it's not about like regularly training, but but rather to, to successfully play in the tournaments, to constantly improve yourself. And uh, in terms of chess, it's really maybe unique sport in the sense that you, you really don't need to practice it every day to, to keep up the form. Uh, it's pretty much okay not to play, let's say, for three months and then quickly pick up the game in a couple of days. Yeah. How much better are grandmasters than like the top players, right? So for the people who actually are a grandmaster versus everyone else, is it an analogy that you could use to explain to people just how much better at chess you are than the average player? Well, also there is, there is no unique measurement, you know, so it's really difficult to compare, but, 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 you know, the difference is is obvious if you, if you put a grandmaster versus someone. Uh, random player uh, definitely would we would see the difference in, in how the game evolves and uh, uh, probably it's, it's again it's easier to to make a comparison with some uh, spectacular sports like uh, let, let's pick tennis again so when you when you see like how Federer plays right or Nadal or Djokovic uh, definitely their level is is way better even than you know many professionals mm-hmm. so let's say um, well also. It's difficult to to compare because in tennis you you don't see uh, those top guys encounter uh, uh, amateurs, right? So you you don't see this often. In in chess, it is it is way more common because in, in any regular tournament and in open tournaments when, where you have like around six hundred players, it can be the situation that you have let's say like ten twenty grandmasters and uh, pretty much everybody else, ranging from from the beginners to to people of international master level, uh, people who are experienced uh, players who played, let's say, 10, 20 years, 30. Um, but really, the the difference is really subtle from, from the outsider point of view. So if you never watch chess, uh, for you, it would be difficult to say, like, why why the guy is the grandmaster, why he plays uh, better. Um, uh, but but yeah, probably it's it's something that you, you would experience once you see it. Um, maybe I just can recall a recent... Uh, uh, like kind of exhibition games, just friendly games with, with my uh, teammates uh, from work, and they uh, they really were amazed, and I was humbled, humbled to, to to hear a lot of uh, you know saying that yeah, it's, it's really amazing to see how you play chess because our thought process is very different from from what we see how you play because they just see that for me it's effortlessly to 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 you know make a good move, and uh, for them they, they they just don't understand how it happens that fast. And the answer is pretty simple, right? Because once you, you've played it for many, many years, it's it's quite easy for you to, to do it, right? So ju- just imagine, like, let's say you, you you learn some new language. And for you, it would take some time even to uh, to memorize some words, right? And then it takes some, you know, time to, to recall them. 
but for a person who speaks, you know, this language for, for all their lives, it's, it's quite easy. So one of the pieces that I, I've always wondered is like for a grandmaster, how much of it is uh, memorization of opening moves and, and kind of a lot of the, the muscle memory just comes from, I've played so many games, I've seen this already, I know how to handle that situation versus no, actually there is a kind of a new computation that is occurring every single time you're playing a game. Well, well luckily it's both. Uh, so definitely memorization, it, it takes a lot of part in, in professional chess and also in amateur chess, especially nowadays, when computers are extremely strong and uh, the theory of openings, it, it evolved tremendously. Uh, I would say like uh, over the past, like 10, 20 years where computer, uh, when computers became really strong. That's why in, in professional chess, definitely memorization, it, it's, it's a very big part of, of, of the battle. But luckily, it's, it's not all. So you cannot win just by memorizing the lines because definitely... At some point of the game, uh, it turns the point where you need to uh, to work yourself. And uh, if you don't have the necessary skills, if you don't have uh, experience and, and understanding of what to do in the position, then uh, it wouldn't work. And um, again, luckily uh, in chess, those occasions they're 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 pretty much in every game. So your preparation for the game, of course, it takes a lot of hours because. You need to memorize a lot of stuff. You need you normally try to predict what your opponent would do, and you just try to memorize the lines that you've already seen, probably, or mm-hmm. or you try to prepare something new that you've never played. But for for this specific opponent, you need to come up with something new. But nevertheless, like once you get into the game and you you begin playing by your plan, then you see like suddenly your opponent just changes his mind or, or probably they just decided to to play something that you you just didn't take into account and then you need to to begin your own thought process and uh, that's why uh, luckily it just accommodates uh, both styles so there are players who uh, really don't, they don't memorize anything so they, they, they just play uh, by intuition and they prefer to uh, try to avoid uh, their opponent's preparations and that, that that's also sufficiently fine for uh, for amateur chess, but of course, for in, in the professional world, if we talk about like uh, top guys, uh, it wouldn't work. So you you need to combine both. You need to be uh, prepared uh, with memory, like psychologically, also emotionally. Uh, you need to be a really good chess player uh, in, in in many many ways. How how much of the game in person? is uh, psychological. Like, can you psych out your uh, opponent, not necessarily with the moves on the actual board, but are there things that you see in competition where uh, there's almost a game off of the board that's happening? Oh, yeah, certainly. It's it's, it's always there. And, uh, and chess is an extremely psychological game. And of course, uh, if we, we talk about pandemic and online chess that became popular over the past few years, uh, things changed a little because uh, when you sit over the board and you see your opponent, uh, you see, you know, her, his face, and uh, you understand that uh, uh, what kind of thoughts are in, in, inside of the person, and uh, that really helps you in some way. So you can be aggressive in, in terms of some moves. Actually, like yeah, what you, you asked about like uh, move wise or not move wise. Actually, uh, over the board, it also makes sense. Sometimes you you can bluff. You can do not really the best move, but the, the move that would be the most unpleasant for your opponent or maybe unexpected. Um, like uh, off the board, it also matters, but uh, ultimately I would say just personally on my feeling, for my career, it didn't matter that much uh, 
because also chess players they like to focus on 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 the game and uh, on the essence and on the board rather than uh, try to outplay opponents off the board. Yeah. How many games could you play at one time, whether online or in person? Is there like a, a number that you feel really comfortable? Four games, eight games, twelve games? Like, how, how do you think about that? Uh, well, I I've played simuls in my uh, career, of course, and uh, over the board, I think it was like twenty five uh, kids uh, whom I played at once, uh, which is which is reasonable number. I, I definitely, I, I'm not sure there is a limit, so I. I I, I think I would easily play like 50, 100. Uh, it doesn't really matter. What matters is, is timing and uh, those kind of things. are. And of course, the, the level of the opponents, it, it matters a lot. Because when, when you play like uh, kids who, who just began playing, uh, then it's, it's, it's easy. You can play maybe even a thousand games. But uh, <laughs> I played... Yeah, I played kids who, who, are, uh, who are not new, so they, they played already, you know, three, four, five years, and uh, they're quite tough to beat, but um, still I managed, I remember the simul, uh, I managed to beat all of them, and normally in simuls, that, that, that's how I do it, <laughs> I just, you know, beat everyone, I'm, I'm merciless in this sense, because uh, I think that, you know, you, you learn a lot in here from, from those simuls, I also remember myself as a kid, and I played those simuls against grandmasters, and uh, I enjoyed them a lot. Though I, I also lost myself, but that, that's my approach. That once you lose, you you can learn from your mistakes, and that's that's the biggest source of your improvement. Uh, online wise, I think I played like around 20, 20 boards and uh, twenty games, and uh, that's that's also just just adequate number. And uh, I think it just depends on the number of people who, who would like to encounter you in the game. Yeah. It sounds insane when you say that you could play a hundred, uh, simultaneous games. Uh, but to your point, if you're simply just concentrating on the board that you're looking at in that moment, uh, and you're playing somebody who has lesser skill than you, uh, then there's advantages that you obviously get. Are there certain things outside of just playing chess, uh, for hours, you know, per day that you can attribute to actually getting better and eventually reaching grandmaster? Oh, absolutely. Actually, uh, playing is not, the, the the only source uh, mostly it's reading books and uh, chess literature is is extremely prolific we have uh, you know some say that actually chess literature is the biggest among any kind of literature which which is difficult to uh, uh, really comprehend I, I mean in sense of let's say science so books and physics if you count the total books that you know the humanity produced over the years it would be surprising to to discover that actually chess books are uh, way more by 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 the by the numbers by the just yeah. rough uh, account of, of how many books were produced uh, so really there is a lot of literature and uh, of course uh, to, to that uh, training camps uh, it's it's extremely important to have coaches uh, people who, who would tell you like what, what you're doing right what, what you're doing wrong on uh, every stage of your career and even uh, professional guys, they they do have coaches. Though, like let's say, if we talk about the the very best, the the world champion Magnus Carlsen, he has uh, a lot of people who who help him, who help him in preparation, in, in psychology, and many other aspects. So it's it's literally like uh, as in any other sport, you see that uh, you see a professional player playing, but at the same time, behind the scenes, there are just enormous team of uh, people who support this uh, performance. Do you share tips and tricks and secrets with other top players or is it very kind of taboo? And uh, if you're a good chess player, you don't want others to know uh, to know all your secrets. Uh, to some extent, uh, of course, uh, you, you know, if you follow chess, you, you, you would uh, immediately see that 
normally chess players they don't want to um, elaborate a lot on, on their preparation and say like hey okay this is something that that was prepared a long time ago or this was my full thought process during the game uh normally we see yeah there, there are interviews and commentaries uh, after the game where you know when, when players they share their thoughts but they do not sincere 100 percent that's 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 for sure uh, and of course there are some uh tips and tricks that uh, every chess player uses uh and uh normally yeah it's it's something that we, we just get used to we, we, we do not share it unless uh with our teammates and uh, our coaches for example, if it's a team competition, definitely we can uh, exchange of ideas. Uh, let's say to play against some opponents, what are their weaknesses, and those kind of things. Or, or uh, in terms of uh, opening preparation, that's that's also important to to kind of discuss it uh, in, in teams. Definitely, it's it's you know the famous proverb that one head is good, but you know two heads uh, are always better. When I think about chess today, um, I would put myself very much in the amateur category, but I'm fascinated by uh, aspects of the game, including uh, uh, kind of machines. Uh, I'm interested in the kind of global nature of the game and how chess, uh, people who have mastered the game of chess, think outside of uh, chess itself and kind of what it teaches you from a, a kind of logic standpoint. If we think of machines, two of the areas that I find absolutely fascinating is one, the rise of artificial intelligence or machine learning. Uh, and so now we have humans competing against computers. And if, you know, somebody has a mobile app on their phone and they're playing against kind of a, a low grade computer, if you're good at chess, you can pretty much set the difficulty level. You can beat it over and over and over again. But what I've started to see now is that there are a number of models or machines that are defeating grandmasters and, and people who are very, very good at chess. And so how do you think about this introduction of kind of more sophisticated uh, computers into the game of chess? Is it good? Is it bad? Do you seek them out to play them? Do you get frustrated? Like, how do you think about it? Well, I, I frankly have mixed feelings because, you know, I, I have my phone and it, it, well, I'm not sure if you can see it, but, but, but anyway, it's. Uh, it's really awful feeling when you you just cannot beat your phone, and uh, and, and actually I uh, I was lucky that I, I raised it at the times where when computers were not that strong, and uh, back in that days uh, we didn't even have smartphones, so there was no even question whether whether you can beat a cell phone or not. Uh, there was a famous story when uh, Gary Kasper was first uh, beat by a machine uh, back in the end of nineties. Uh, he lost to Deep Blue, and it was quite a big deal at that time because probably, arguably it was a turning point in, in chess history when uh, a machine uh, really beat uh, human. Now, of course, uh, we see a tremendous progress of uh, uh, computers and, of course, uh, machine learning techniques involved in that. It's, it's really something amazing. When uh, Alpha Zero, which is uh, arguably also the, the, the best uh, chess engine uh, Ever uh, based on you know machine learning uh, algorithms. Once it kind of released, I really couldn't believe it, you know it happens because I thought it's some kind of fake or scam because uh, the performance of uh, of Alpha Zero was so much better than traditional uh, engines that we have in chess. Um, that really also it was kind of a revolution in the game, but. Nowadays, indeed, uh, we as human humans, we, we we just cannot compete with uh, with computers. It's it's like literally like trying to run a hundred meter race against uh, against the supercar. Uh, 
because the computational abilities of uh, computers these days, uh, they're enormous. And also the algorithm of evaluation of positions and uh, uh, how to approach chess, it's, it's very different uh, in terms of technologies uh, these days. That's why uh, computer preparation uh, nowadays, it, 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 is, it, it weighs way more than it was, let's say, 10 years, 15 years ago. Uh, not saying like 25 years ago, or, or maybe like let's say, let's if we talk about before computer era, 50, 70 years ago, which pro arguably was also a golden era of chess. When people really they uh, uh, kind of competed over the board. Now we we definitely can say that uh, modern chess players that they not only compete over the board, but they they also compete in their uh, home labs when they have a lot of assistants, they have a lot of uh, computers, uh, various approaches to. To, to to positions to openings and uh, uh, there is also a question who has the strongest uh, computer uh, though again as, as I already mentioned luckily uh, it's the question who is a better chess player luckily it's not only about uh, who has better home preparation and who has a stronger computer so still you can uh, can beat the guy with with the, you know strongest preparation just by because you're more talented and that that, that that's really cool but just getting back to your question how how, how I really feel about it and uh, how it really affected the, 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 the kind of the approach to chess. Um, really, in, in, in a way, it feels bad when, you know, you, you get into trap, you know, you know, when you just play with a kid who, who really just put everything in the computer back home and uh, you cannot outplay them uh, right from the start just because your preparation is no longer better. Because back in the times, uh, you know, becoming a grandmaster it takes to reading a lot of books, and you, you are very knowledgeable in in, uh, in openings. Now there is no such advantage exists. Uh, literally anyone can uh, just open their their computer, put the chess engine on, and uh, they're going to be experts as you are. So really, there is no need to to. To have access to grandmasters to to get some sense of the position. Uh, these days, uh, computers they suggest literally better moves and solutions compared to human, and that's why it became very different. Mm -hmm. uh, though still, it's it, in no way it means that uh, chess is, is in deep trouble and we were just ending up seeing computers battling themselves. Uh, not at all. Uh, still. Uh, we're running at the same hundred meters, but you know, among uh, humans, not not with supercars. Do you think that computers will just play each other? Like, is there a time where, whether it's tournaments or uh, for just entertainment purposes or whatever, like we'll just see computers competing against computers, and humans will just be spectators? Well, actually, it's already there. <laughs> actually, you probably were not aware of this, but there are tournaments between computers, and uh, there Crazy. are also competitions. Though, you know, I myself also, I must confess that I, I don't follow them because it, it's quite boring when you see uh, normal chess, uh, especially for me as a, a kind of semi-professional semi chess player. It's really uh, a lot of pleasure to watch uh, how, how people play chess. But for me, there is little pleasure to see how machines try to beat each other. Uh, of course, I, I, I occasionally I come across uh, the games and I see like how they play and uh, how they, uh, you know, approach positions, approach uh, ideas, but it's really completely different field. And uh, but but there are tournaments, and I'm not sure when they began. But uh, I, I would say that they began as long as uh, chess engines uh, were released. So 
like let's say just if you if put uh, some timestamp begin like beginning of 2000s that's probably the time when uh, those uh, tournaments among chess computers they, they began and uh, they keep on competing in nowadays and uh, that's how we discovered that also machine learning uh, uh, based uh, computers they're they're stronger than traditional engines but but of course uh, it also requires to to kind of adjust the computers in terms of computational power, because apparently if you have uh, more cores, if you have, uh, let's say, uh, as, as we say, like, uh, yeah, more ferrum into that, then uh, the computer would be better. When you think about uh, the rise of these chess engines, how prevalent is cheating? I'm assuming online there's lots of quote-unquote cheating depending on how you want to characterize that in tournaments or whatever. But does that also spill over into kind of physical tournaments as well, in-person tournaments? Or how do you think about cheating in, in the chess world right now? Oh, yeah. It's it's actually it's, it's a big topic. It's a big topic and a lot of debates in the chess world around it because – Really, there there is a great fear of cheating uh, simply because it, it became so so easy. Uh, and and again, it's it's just as easy as just just having a phone, right? So because you know that the phone plays better than you, and uh, you literally can uh, improve your game just looking at the phone, uh, right? And that's why cheating it, it became uh, widely available, and that's why also these days in in the tournaments, it's it's really a must for the organizers to like make sure that all the anti-cheating measures they're in place and uh just just a day ago it, it, it was a huge scandal uh and, and it's still a scandal we're kind of amid of this uh chess drama as we call it that uh world champion magnus carlson he uh withdrew from the tournament which happened the first time in his career and uh supposedly it is related to uh, to some suspicions that the guy in the tournament who, who actually beat Magnus just a day uh, before Magnus withdrew that he cheated uh, though there's no any direct evidence as far as I know and uh, and, and that's a big problem indeed and that, that's that's a huge debate uh, uh, what to do in future because uh, if we admit that it's so easy to to cheat and uh, perform way better than, than you are then uh, yeah difficult to, to say that we again compete on the track field uh, not against uh, supercars but uh, also, there is a problem that, in in a way, it became a witch hunt because uh, also people who apparently they do not cheat, uh, but they perform uh, extremely strong for for various reasons. And and of course, if we talk about young uh, players, it's it's really possible to to gain strength quite quickly, as in any other sport, right? You you see like a fourteen year old kid just doesn't know how to play. I don't know, let's say football, but then in, in two years it, it's a superstar of. Uh, NFL, right? So that that's that's quite common. Uh, so in, in chess, it's exactly the same, uh, and that's why we see that uh, youngsters they they rise quite fast. And, uh, and then, of course, since we know that in, in our computer era, uh, you know, some miracles they might happen not because you're a talented player and not because you put a lot of effort in the game, but just simply because you found the find the found a way to to cheat. Mm-hmm. Uh, regarding online tournaments, it, it's even worse because uh, when we play uh, back at home, so it, it's really difficult to uh, prevent people from cheating. Uh, though, of course, in, in the professional chess world, uh, we know that we don't cheat. For example, I myself, when I play another grandmaster in an official tournament, let's say it was a uh, student's league, uh, 
I, I know that we don't cheat because it's it's kind of also professional ethics. Uh, we were raised in, in completely different uh, mentality, uh, and it, it's it's just simply not acceptable to cheat. Because also for me, like let's say if I talk about myself personally, uh, it, it's a really red line. So once I begin cheating, it means that I'm not a chess player anymore. Because when I play chess, I enjoy uh, not only beating the opponent, but I enjoy uh, making the best move and finding it myself and being proud of myself uh, performing well in chess. So imagine what, I mean, let, let's say you, again, let, let's pick, pick tennis, right? So if you if you play uh, and beat Rafael Nadal, then you can be proud of yourself. But would you be proud in the same way if, if you cheated, if you if you used, uh, you know, some doping or uh, or medicine or, or, or did something uh, unacceptable? It would be completely different feeling. So, and in terms of uh, getting enjoyment from the game, it's it's uh, it's really not acceptable to cross this line. Um, when you think of, thought, yeah. when, when you think about cheating, a lot of people will talk about the chess engines. What about things that uh, people ingest? So, you know, some people would argue, "Oh, uh, you drank coffee, I didn't. You can focus better, or you have better concentration." I don't think most people would say that's cheating, right? That would just be, hey, you drank right. some coffee before uh, before the match. Uh, but are there instances in chess or, or things that are, are top of mind right now, uh, whether it's Adderall or other types of things that people could be taking and ingesting to, to actually give them an advantage in playing? That's actually an excellent question because there was also a lot of debates around that uh, pretty much all the time. And, uh, and the answer is quite simple that... Uh, Actually, there is no uh, kind of prohibited substances or that, that there is nothing that uh, is not acceptable. So it's not like uh, in uh, athletics where uh, you, you see that, you know, just some in injections, they're just not accepted because it, it's a violation of laws and then what just would, would come after you. In chess, the, the, there is no such thing. And uh, it, it's up to you. You can drink like 10 cups of coffee and uh, still it's, it's not clear. Like first of all, why it happens because it's not clear how it affects your your brain. Uh, definitely, we know that, for example, coffee is, is a big stimulator, right? But at the same time, it's not clear how it really helps to perform uh, over the board. And uh, for some people, it, it really adds up uh, to their strengths. For for some others, it, it might not. And uh, even scientifically, there is no uh, direct answer if. Uh, uh, Let's say eating something during the game, it would uh, boost your performance or, or not. That's why, uh, like, uh, apart from uh, really using technologies and computer cheating, uh, there is no such way to cheat uh, in any other way, let's say, by drinking some some liquid. Well, we, we see that normally it's, it's uh, the, the accepted kind of uh, perception of that, that it, it wouldn't help. This episode is brought to you by Amber Data. If you're a financial institution entering the digital asset class, you'll need access to granular on-chain and market data from multiple venues to power research, trading, risk management, and compliance. Amber Data delivers comprehensive data and insights into blockchain networks, crypto markets, and decentralized finance, empowering financial institutions to apply traditional finance methods to digital assets. Amber Data eliminates the infrastructure setup, integrated challenges, and maintenance headaches to access digital assets data, reducing cost and time to market to enter the digital asset class. Learn more and download their digital asset data guide at www.amberdata.io slash pomp. Again, that's amberdata.io slash pomp. Go check them out today.
This episode is brought to you by 8sleep. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer, and the 8sleep pod is the ultimate sleep machine. The pod is the only sleep technology that dynamically cools and heats each side of the bed to maintain the optimal sleeping temperature for what your body needs. With the pod, you can start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. What is the result? Clinical data shows that 8sleep users experience up to 19% increase in recovery, 32% improvement in sleep quality, and up to 34% more deep sleep. How do I know it works? I sleep on it every single night, and it works so well that I begged the founders to let me invest in the company. Go check them out today at 8sleep.com slash pomp to start sleeping cool this summer and save $150 on the pod. Again, 8sleep.com slash pomp, and you get $150 off when you use code pomp. This episode is brought to you by Core, the free non-custodial browser extension built by Ava Labs, which is more than just a wallet. Did you know that you can also bridge Bitcoin natively across the Avalanche Bridge and take advantage of the thriving DeFi ecosystem in that community? With Core, any crypto user can easily swap assets, display NFTs in a beautiful interface, and store your assets in a ledger-enabled wallet. Plus, you can put real dollars in your Core wallet in just a few clicks. Go to core.app to access the full power of Web3 today. I've got a friend, Ivo Marinov, who is uh, one of the top players in the world at One Minute Fisher Chess. And uh, when I told him that I was going to speak with you, he sent me a quote from Bobby Fisher, who basically was talking about the invention of uh, Fisher Chess. And for those that don't know, uh, it's basically the board starts out with the pieces scattered in a random uh, formation. And then if you play one minute, uh, it obviously adds the pressure of, of the time. How do you think about some of these other chess games that have been invented over time, uh, either to cut down on memorization or cut down on specific advantages that people have? Um, is it something that you enjoy playing? Do you just stick to kind of more classical chess? How, how do you think about these games? Uh, I personally, myself, I will begin with the second part. I myself prefer classical chess. Uh, though I very much respect uh, Fisher Random Chess, I also enjoy playing it. Uh, though, of course, I don't play it as much as a classical game. Uh, but to add to that, I would also say that uh, one minute bullet game, it's, it's also a completely different universe of chess. And uh, I, I would say in general that I see that we have uh, really different variations of chess and uh, playing like one minute online, it's in my understanding, it's really not a classical chess because I was uh, raised as a chess player uh, under completely different circumstances when you, you have a chess position and uh, your goal is to uh, and to find the best move, find the best plan. And uh, you're normally not restricted in time. So your goal is not to, to find the, the best move uh, in five seconds and why i'm saying this because some positions in chess they're uh, uh, as difficult as for for you know finding the solution you might need like uh, at least 15 minutes and uh, back in the old days uh, people trained and uh, you know for some positions puzzles you you might spend even hours uh, trying to find the solution and uh, that, that's really kind of also another way to, to, to enjoy chess when you really literally spend hours and hours trying to analyze one position and uh, trying to find uh, the solution. And you still cannot find it. So it's, it's like, you know, uh, puzzles for mathematicians also, they, in a way they're similar, but uh, with different approaches. So, but back to questions with uh, with other types of chess, I, of course, I, I, I do respect that chess evolves and uh, I, I do respect bullet chess, though I'm not personally myself, I'm not a fan of it. and. Uh, uh, one minute fish random. Uh, frankly, I haven't seen it, so I, I I probably need to you know spend some time to to see it because 
I'm pretty sure it's amazing uh, since uh, Fisher Random indeed, since the position is not trivial and, and you're seeing it for the first time, right from the opening, right from the beginning of the game, you need to uh, uh, approach uh, it very differently. And, and for that, you absolutely have to have some, some time on, on the clocks to to just get, get into position. And for example, personally for me, it would take definitely more than one minute just to, to realize, okay, where the pieces are and the, what would be the best setup, how, how to begin the game. But hearing that people can play uh, an entire game in one minute with Fisher Random, it's, it's really amazing. But, but definitely it's, it's uh, not a surprise for me. And uh, I, uh, I also appreciate uh, seeing people do this. I uh, I refrain from ever playing with him because uh, I couldn't tell you where the pieces are in one minute, just like right. you. So it is uh, it is quite impressive. Uh, talk to me about the uh, International Chess Federation. They obviously the uh, elections recently happened. Uh, you were running for president. Uh, talk a little bit just about uh, that organization, the current leadership, and and why you had chosen to uh, to run. Uh, yes, this decision to run for myself it came very unexpectedly. Uh, this idea just came to my mind. Uh, around the end of April, uh, around the, the time when uh, the current incumbent president, uh, Arkady Dvorkovich, uh, he declared that he wants to get reelected. And for me, it was completely insane. And, and it, it still is. It, it, it's still ter- terrible to see that uh, the current leadership of uh, International Chess Federation. And uh, it, it's actually a long story. And uh, for the background, uh, actually, that there were always perception that uh, chess is it's kind of a Soviet game. Why it happened? Because apparently Soviet Union was uh, dominating chess for many years uh, uh, since like, let's say, 1950s. And uh, what happened was International Chess Federation in 1995, uh, we got elections where uh, Kirsan Olimzhinov, who is a Russian politician, uh, he won the elections. He he's actually he, he was not from the chess world, so he, he came unexpectedly to kind of rescue the chess world after the crisis that uh, happened after 13 years of presidency of uh, Florencio Campomanes, who um, uh, arguably was uh, was a KGB spy or something like, let's say KGB agent actually. And uh, for example, Gary Kasparov, who is uh, probably one of the most famous chess player of our generation, like many generations actually, uh, he claimed that uh, uh, International chess organizations, in a way, it's, it's under control of KGB, and it, it has been like that at least since 1992 when Campomanes was first elected. So the story evolved that uh, in '95, when Elmzhinov uh, became the president, uh, he put some money into FIDE. He's he's he's, he's a businessman, and, and in a way, he he kind of rescued organization. That's that's kind of also the, the perception. But uh, still, there were a lot of scandals and and uh, all kind of bad things and. Eventually, it turned out that Ilyushinov, he has been the president until 2018. So for 23 years, we had a Russian politician running the organization. Ilyushinov, he was actually famous for three things. One of them that he, uh, according to himself, he was abducted by aliens, which, which is pretty cool to have, uh, you know, the main representative of, of the chess world who, who is abducted by aliens. <laughs> then uh, he, he was famous for, for his visits with uh, and meetings with uh, all the best people in our world, like uh, Muammar Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, Bashar Assad, and uh, and those kind of things. Uh, and, and what I'm trying to say that uh, apparently the Chess Federation was not was not about chess only, which of course is, is it's a huge shame. So Chess Federation uh, for many years it was 
more about politics and uh, it was an instrument of uh, Russian politics for those years. And unfortunately it still is. Uh, and, and finally in 2015, uh, was uh, got sanctioned by US Treasury for his ties to Syrian government and Syrian bank. Uh, and uh, eventually he, he, he actually tried to get reelected in 2018. And that was his intention. And uh, what is really unfortunate about it that uh, the system is built in the way that it's really almost impossible to beat the incumbent president. And however, the incumbent, as it was in the case of William Zhinov, he easily won all the elections. For example, in 2006, we had a really great competition, a uh, very uh, well-known chess organizer, Bessel Koch from Netherlands. Uh, he competed with William Zhinov. And of course, all the chess world, and especially Western chess world, we, we had high hopes that finally the federation will become modern, democratic, and, uh, and progressive. But, but guess what? Elimjino won just easily back in the days. Then in 2014, Gary Kasparov himself, he ran against uh, Elimjino, and he put a lot of resources and efforts to, to become a president. And yet he lost uh, also quite convincingly, simply because it's really not possible to kind of beat this corrupted system. Because whoever is the president, uh, you know, Ilimzhinov had all the possibilities to travel around the world and uh, talk to delegates, federations. And eventually, he had everything under control. So what happened in 2018, uh, Arkady Dvorkovic, who is a Russian politician, who, is, uh, who has extremely prominent career in Kremlin, he's been uh, for many years uh, close aid, closest aide to Putin himself, to Dmitry Medvedev when he was uh, president. So Dvorkovic... He was deputy prime minister for six years. He was uh, uh, advisor to the president also for many years. And you can imagine in 2018, the guy who has little to do with chess, uh, despite his uh, father, he was an international chess arbiter. But that's the only connection that Dvorkovich has to the chess world. So the guy, just three months before the elections, he comes in and says like, oh yeah, uh, I would like to run for the presidency and uh, I would be good with the president. And uh, at the same time, Ilimzhinov, he withdraws from the elections. He declares full support to, to Dvorkovich. And why it all happens? Just simply because Dvorkovich has enormous support of Russian government, uh, financial support, political support, and uh, all kinds of those things. And uh, eventually Dvorkovich won those elections in 2018. And uh, now 2022, uh, the elections that we had just one month ago, in April, I just realized that this time we're just on the edge of not having elections at all, because really nobody wants to contest this. Because also many people just understand that it's just hopeless. You cannot uh, beat such machine, especially when again uh, the federation is fully under political control of Russia. Uh, moreover, of course, what added spices to that that uh, uh, the situation is completely different from what it was in 2018 or. Uh, 2006, 2014, uh, when, again, we, we were talking about chess, but now uh, we're uh, probably not the only one, uh, I think, in, in boxing, it's, it's uh, in a way, it's a similar situation in boxing federation, that uh, we're a sports federation that is run by, uh, by a Russian politician. And, of course, it's, it's not only a big shame for, for us as, as chess players, as chess world, to, to have such representation. Uh, but also from, from the practical point of view, it's uh, quite uh, difficult to attract any sponsors. So if we say that the, the International Chess Federation, the, the main goal of it is to globally promote chess, how on earth we can do that if, if 
no sponsors would like to to sign any contracts merely because they know that for themselves being in any way associated with Russian politics. And now we see what what Russian politics actually means. It's uh, not only terror inside the country. Now they they're just bringing terror outside of their country for uh, actually many years. And this full scale invasion in Ukraine is just uh, what which happened in February. It's just another round of this uh, external aggression of Russia. And and from a practical point of view, for us as a chess world, to to have Dvorkovich, who has close ties to Kremlin, and say that and pretend that nothing happens, it, and, and we still can uh, can talk about chess, not about politics. Uh, it was quite, I mean, difficult to to even think of that. And that's why it drove my decision to to enter the competition myself and say like, okay, hey, if nobody in the world really wants to to say the right things and and uh, you know, compete against this system, then I would do this. And uh, that's how I ended up in these elections. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm really, you know, proud of, of, of my efforts. And I'm really happy that, you know, so many people, they landed support because also what happens uh, in the chess world, many understand that things are not going the right way. Uh, though uh, not many are willing to, to do anything because they, they just see that it's, it's, it's hopeless. So we just got used to, to being run by Russian politicians. And it's been for 23 years with Elimjino. And now it's uh, after four years of Dvorkovich, we, we were saying like, okay, okay, we have like another four years of, of Russian politicians being in the office. And uh, we pretend that nothing happened, which is, of course, the, I, I mean, at least disappointing to say the least. Yeah. One of the things that makes this an even more, uh, I think, kind of sensitive topic for you is you obviously are Ukrainian uh, and uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, while not directly related to anything in the chess world, you're bringing up uh, a number of things where uh, it may not be as black and white as is it related, is it not? Um, how do you think about the Russian invasion of Ukraine? And, and uh, as you speak to people in Ukraine, who I'm assuming you still have family and friends there, what are they telling you about the actual situation on the ground? Oh well, it's it's also a very large topic, and of course, uh, I, I do have a lot of relatives there, friends, uh, pretty much all my life uh, in Ukraine. And uh, though I live in US for, for the past uh, uh, seven years, uh, still uh, I'm very much Ukrainian, and uh, it's, it's it's just to say it's heartbreaking for me to see what happens. It's just just the least I can say. Uh, of course, I, I'm I'm very much outraged. It, it's it's really not kind of imaginable to see that in 21st century uh, one country just can declare that another one doesn't exist and uh, when it's kind of our artificial uh, kind of nation or something some this, this nonsense that Putin tries to and Russian propaganda tries to put uh, in justification of what they do uh, it's it's really you know shocking to see and I think uh, my feelings, they, uh, of course, they, they are more sensitive and uh, uh, of course I see things differently, but, but at least I, I how to say, uh, well, to, to me, it's good to see that we have a lot of support. It's, it's, it's really uh, amazing to see that we, we are not there by ourselves in, in this battle. I see that literally all the same people in the world, they, they understand that it's not right. Uh, really, we would prefer to talk about chess, about, you know, I don't know, politics, sports, uh, finances, 
economics, culture, those kind of things, but not talking about war and, uh, and uh, you know, suffering of people. And, and, and what Russia actually does these days, uh, just a complete horror because uh, it's really difficult to, to put other things out of context, including chess as well. And of course, uh, I, I, I do not kind of uh, hide this, that my biggest motivation to run for Peter presidency it was also driven by the fact that uh, I just couldn't stand the, the idea that we're still okay to have Russian politicians and we're still okay to pretend that nothing happened. Uh, because really we see that, you know, why, why Russia needs it, why uh, it's important for them to, to be part of the civilized world, to say like, okay, hey guys, we're in the in the chess. We're in culture and politics. We're we're like having some negotiations, talks, we play sports. But at the same time, we can freely invade other countries and uh, make just really terroristic attacks for no reason. And that's what Russia keeps on doing all these uh, six months uh, of this invasion. They they are not uh, doing like as they claim that it's a special military operation against some Nazis. It's just all complete nonsense. What they do, they just target civilian objects, so many people are dying for no reason, uh, including actually Russian soldiers. Uh, and it seems that for, for Russians, it's acceptable. And they say like, oh, okay, yeah, we, we just keep on, you know, uh, thinking of other things like, you know, playing chess or something. Uh, so yeah, but just getting back to your question, of course, all, all what happens, it's, it's a huge shock. And uh, of course, on, on the personal level for me, uh, definitely, and uh, and I, I I wouldn't exaggerate if I say that it's a big shock for the entire world, because now we, we all see and witness uh, how indeed cruel and how bad this authoritarian regime in Russia is, because prior to that it was all kind of hidden, though it's like on my personal view it it happened not in February it actually happened long time ago pretty much when when Putin came into power in in, in two thousand in the beginning of two thousands. Uh, because we know of uh, invasion of Georgia in 2008 and accession of Crimea in 2014. Also, we know all those spy operations and uh, all those scandals when uh, uh, Russian intelligence uh, assassinate people around the wor world, like in London and Berlin and in, in Doha, Dubai, like also interference in uh, U.S. elections. And, and the world seemed to be okay with that. They say like, oh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's really bad, but it's politics. We, we just keep it aside. Uh, but now, now the, the world is indeed shocked to see that uh, another round of this uh, aggression against humanity, it happens in Ukraine when Russia declares, oh, yeah, we, we just, you know, pursue our some interests and, uh, yeah, we, we, we have the right to do what we do, which is, I mean, it's, it's really abnormal. And, uh, and again, I'll probably repeat myself in that. That it's it, it's really uh, heartwarming to see that we have a lot of support and uh, uh, Ukrainians really appreciate uh, the help of uh, Western countries, uh, United States, European Union, uh, which actually and many other countries that are united against this, this idea that we can uh, let it go and say like okay, hey, uh, Russia is, is still a big country, we're still you know afraid of them and let them do whatever they like with their neighbors. Well, what's uh, up with uh, uh, President Zelensky? Like, I think most people in the U.S., they never heard of him before. And uh, just this past week, he was uh, 
literally ringing the bell to the U.S. stock market. He was on uh, national financial television. He's been on the cover of Vogue magazine. He's obviously spoke directly to uh, Congress, and and uh, uh, he's a, an individual who obviously, as the leader of Ukraine, uh, was on the international stage, right, to, to some degree. But given the uh, the situation and the conflict here, uh, he has now risen to a level of international prominence that I think many people have been surprised by. What, what do Ukrainians kind of think about uh, the role that he's taken in all of this? Uh, yeah, I, I would say also, like, uh, normally I, I don't like generalizations because, you know, Ukrainians are also very different. And uh, it's difficult to say, like, okay, hey, like, all the Ukrainians, they, they think the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, of course, we, we still, even amid war, we have uh, some people who, who appreciate his actions or some of his actions and so on. But, of course, in general, uh, here probably I would generalize, yes, Ukrainians are very proud of Zelensky, and including myself. Um, I wasn't a fan of Zelensky when he became a president in 2019, and uh, also for the background, he he's a comedian actor, so he's not a professional politician and uh, and never been into politics. But he's a very famous in Ukraine. He was, and uh, and that that really helped him to to become a president, because people in Ukraine they, they were also disappointed with uh, probably previous governments. But, but anyway, to, to to your question, indeed, he he became. Uh, uh, to some extent, a national hero because he uh, refused to to flee from Kiev, which is uh, uh, just I mean just the best decision ever, I would say. Uh, and of course, I, I praise him for that, for, for his courage, uh, for his uh, uh, also bravery and uh, all the actions he does. And of course, uh, amid war, uh, I personally like, I, I, I learned all my full support to, to, to what he does. And I really admire what, what, what he does and uh, his uh, uh, all efforts to raise awareness, to uh, increase help, to, to solicit help from, from other countries. It's, it's really what, what we need and uh, what, what, what we hope for. And uh, Ukraine is really united uh, uh, for, for our leader. And uh, if we talk about political leader, of course, Ukrainians, uh, they're very much united in, in their support to army forces. Uh, we donate a lot of money uh, from all over the world. Also, it's it's really uh, amazing to see. And for, for me personally, I witnessed it that uh, humanitarian aid and support have been flowing into Ukraine for those past six months. Uh, just millions of tons of, of, of aid. And uh, even here in Los Angeles, where I'm based, we don't have a big diaspora of Ukrainians, but we're still very much united in our support to Ukraine and we do all we can in, uh, in various ways. And uh, what Zelensky does, uh, appealing to global community, it's, it's one of the ways to, to uh, help the, the, our case and uh, finally stop Russian aggression and uh, push all the occupants uh, out from, from Ukraine. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's pretty incredible to see uh, how quickly he's been able to uh, to get that message out. And obviously, uh, most of the people in Ukraine that I've uh, spoken to that either lived there before, uh, still have family and friends there, uh, or live somewhere abroad, uh, seem to be pretty appreciative of uh, of his efforts. Talk to me about uh, kind of the market, the, the financial market. You have a PhD uh, in applied economics, and uh, uh, chess obviously is something that you're very well known for. Uh, but you kind of have this whole other life, and and uh, have a, a ton of kind of traditional education, uh, but also I know a lot of interest. How do you see kind of the macro environment right now? Uh, and then maybe more specifically uh, for this audience, a lot of people care about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And do you have any thoughts there? 
Uh, yeah, we'll probably also break your question in two parts. Uh, of course, especially of, of the topic of uh, Russian aggression in Ukraine. It, it, it's also pretty pretty much obvious, I guess, to, to the audience that uh, world economy is shaken because of that. And uh, simply because Russia is, is uh, quite a big country, though not, not that much large economy. Uh, Ukraine is also one of the biggest suppliers of uh, agricultural uh, foods, so agricultural markets, apparently, they, they're uh, shaken. And we, we see that the, the stability of the entire world uh, economy is, uh, is under a threat. Um, well, maybe it's a little exaggerated, but definitely we see that uh, uh, the, the, there are huge fluctuations. Uh, for example, you, you can see it on, on a gas station, right? So gas prices uh, over the past months, they, they were uh fluctuating pretty badly and uh, we've seen that uh, the, the the increase in, in gas prices were unprecedented uh in the times and of course uh, uh prices for for energy sources they, they they're they are one of the biggest drivers of uh, of the global economy and uh I, I, until the, the, this war is, is over until we stop putting uh, it, it's still going to be shaking difficult to, to get back to the stability because uh, again the, the modern world uh, has changed and now we see that it became truly more global some people they might think like hey it's, it's kind of a regional war that we're really far from it and why would we care about it but in fact we see that uh, there are so many interconnections uh, so many global companies that operate in, uh, in uh, different continents that uh, really the economy uh, became global and uh, in this sense we have like are like what eight billion people but still we are we're very much interconnected by any uh, such things and that's why we see that uh, the, the those shakeups of economy they uh, they're driven by by this war and uh, and, and you see like many brands they, they exited uh, Russia of course uh, investment environment in Ukraine is, is uh, really in a poor situation because of because of the war uh, so that's why it's it's really difficult to predict what happened because the situation still is not stabilized. Uh, uh, go, go, going back to your uh, part of, of uh, cryptocurrency and financial market, um, also for me, I, I would also put a disclaimer there that I'm not a big expert. So the way I, I do have a PhD in economics, it still uh, doesn't make me uh, a big expert in the field. Though, though I, I would say that also financial markets, and that, that's my personal view, they, they're still very much driven by the real economy. And, and again, it's, it's, it's really very much related to, to the first part of question that uh, with those uh, global shakes in, in, in the economy, with disruptions of many supply chains uh, on many goods, we'll see that uh, the restructuring of economies, it, it would take time. And... Uh, and I really hope that uh, the war will be over and uh, Ukraine will get victory soon. And then we will be talking about new reality in the sense that uh, uh, in a stable environment, how are we going to be building up uh, not only like political relationships and, and those kind of things, but also how to um, uh, rebuild those uh, supply chains and, and how they're going to be reflected for uh, for the economy. Uh, I would just make a, just a humble prediction that uh, you, know, you know, once we get, go over those uh, uh, kind of uh, shocks that we see, uh, the, the economy will be kind of rebuilding pretty quickly. And, uh, and of course, I'm not talking about Ukraine, but 
pretty much the entire world. So once the energy prices are stabilized, uh, we, we can kind of, you know, slowly progress uh, to kind of a more stable environment, I, I would say in this way. And, uh, okay, if we go back to, to cryptocurrencies, um, also it's, it's quite a big topic. Uh, I, I would just say that it's, uh, to, to my point of view, uh, in a way, it's a niche market, and uh, it will be this way for, for quite some time. And uh, I'm not really sure that it can become uh, more global in, in terms of uh, uh, presence in financial market. Yeah, it feels like a lot of folks who are into uh, technology, obviously, are into Bitcoin cryptocurrencies. Uh, but also, there's uh, uh, some interesting parts of our conversation today. Uh, Russia, Ukraine, obviously, lots of people talking about uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, along with other technologies. If you think of the chess world, there's actually been a number of people uh, in the chess world who are very interested in uh, in these assets as well. And so, I, I tend to think uh, a lot about how uh, usually a financial asset—I don't know, take real estate as an example—it ends up being somewhat isolated. You're a real estate investor or you're not a real estate investor. It's in your portfolio or it's not. But you don't think about like, I like real estate and therefore I also like, you know, chess and this and this and this. Uh, but in some way, uh, kind of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, it does seem to attract a, um, a certain type of uh, audience that is receptive to it early, right? And so maybe that's like an early adopter type thing. Maybe it's people who like uh, math and science and technology. There's a lot of different ways you could cut it. But it is fascinating to see how quickly in, you know, 13 years or so, uh, an asset that, you know, literally didn't exist now all of a sudden has this global brand that, uh, regardless of the language, when people see that, you know, orange, uh, B, they know what it is. And, and, uh, it's something I'm fascinated by. I don't think we fully understand yet, you know, kind of how this has happened and, and where it's going. Um, but, but it definitely is different than I think anything that you and I have seen in our lifetimes. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And uh, yeah, I also like your notion that indeed it's it's kind of bubbles, right? Uh, and I think like the, the direct comparison is, is uh, probably social media and, and also what, what happens uh, like in uh, like information wise, right? So we, we really, uh, we, we again, we kind of think that we, we see the global picture. In fact, uh, that's not really true because Many people indeed they they see the, the part of it depending on their bubble. And as you say, like for example, if you're a real estate investor, then uh, yeah, you 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 have some expertise in that. But but if you're not, then uh, you just have no idea what goes on there, right? So uh, for example, just if talking about real estate here in uh, in California where I live now for just slightly over than one year, I'm I'm, I'm amazed to see that uh, the, the the real estate prices they 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 keep on rising. That's that's really uh, interesting since many people who are not not really uh, you know experts on that they, they say that hey it's a, it's a bubble it's it's not possible to see that you know prices that they've been rising for more than twenty years and uh, and now even amid the pandemic when uh, many people actually they they leave California right because technology is also allow us to to work remotely uh, still we see that real estate prices for some reason they they keep on rising even more so uh, that's why yeah it's it, it's indeed uh, you know many questions to that uh, what kind of bubble we're focusing on yeah 
It's absolutely fascinating. Um, when, when I think about, uh, you and you have so many different interests, how do you describe yourself to people? Do you tell people, uh, I play chess, I'm a grandmaster. Do you tell them, no, I'm into economics. Is it just, I have multi, uh, kind of faceted interests. Like, how do you think about your own identity? It's, it's quite combined. Uh, you know, I, I like, uh, in the chess world, I like refer to myself as a semi-professional chess player, because obviously when people hear that I'm a grandmaster, they, uh, they think like, wow, I, Apparently, the guy spent all his life in chess, which is uh, which is not really true. And I'm really, you know, thankful to chess that it allows not only focus on the chessboard and chess but also uh, not compromising with with your chess career. It allows you to do some other things. And uh, I've spent uh, a lot of time in education, and of course, doing my PhD, uh, it took me six years to to accomplish this uh, milestone. Um, so, referring to myself, it's uh, well, difficult to say. I probably I would just quote my mother, who who likes to say that life it's it's just a multitasking on on various levels, and then you need to be uh, a, you know uh, a good family member. You need to be a good professional in what you do. You need to you know like your hobbies and and so on. So uh, uh, I I would say yeah, I'm, I'm very much chess player, of course. Uh, though I I don't play chess professionally and. Uh, I don't coach uh, professionally, though still I, I'm very much proud of, of my chess career and uh, I'm indeed a chess player. And uh, uh, and of course, at the same time, I, I'm an economist uh, and uh, professionally, that, that's what I do, uh, mostly economics. And, uh, I, I yes, love so. it. I love it. Uh, I want two recommendations from you. The first is on uh, chess lit literature. Uh, is there one book or one piece of information that if somebody is like, hey, I want to get more serious about chess that you would highly suggest they go and uh, and read? Uh, also tough question because I guess, you know, as, as in any other field, that there is no unique uh, advice. There, there's not something that you say, hey, like just, just read, read one book and you will become an expert. You know, such a book doesn't exist, but... Though I, uh, for for the beginners, those who uh, just began playing chess or who, who played just just a little, I normally like suggesting a book of uh, by uh, Jose Raúl Capablanca, who is uh, uh, who used to be a world champion, uh, as far as I remember, fourth world, no, third world champion. Uh, so he uh, he wrote a book uh, which is called like um, uh, so I, yeah I I'm trying to recall the name, but. Uh, it's pretty much the, the book for beginners. It's called like you know self-taught uh, manual for uh, for chess players. And why I like it because it, it really has uh, uh, different steps uh, how you how you understand the game. So let's say if you're a beginner, you can just open the the book on the first pages and it explains you you know how how pieces how they move. Then uh, later parts of the book they they explain very well the the basic concepts. Uh, well, what means center in chess, uh, how to develop pieces, uh, what, what plans are more effective than the others. But of course, this is the book for, for the beginners, uh, for people who, who are more or less advanced players. Uh, the, the approach would be completely different. And uh, to that, I would say uh, uh, general suggestion is just to, to read literature as, as much as you can. Uh, I mean, chess literature. And, uh, and of course, uh, play the game because that's ultimately what drives people to like the game, not only, you know, study it, but also play and enjoy it. Because after all, uh, chess, uh, chess is a game. It's, it's not only science, not only a uh, way to, or like, let's say, uh, 
way to self-improve. It's, it's also a game that you, you enjoy. That's awesome. Uh, and then the second piece of uh, recommendation, if you will, if people want to learn more about what's going on in Ukraine, is there one place that you would send them to, uh, uh, to kind of learn more so that it's not just from uh, the American media or international media? Like, is there a, a source that you go to to check? Uh, that's actually an excellent question. And I myself, uh, I'm maybe lucky in this sense because, uh, you know, I, I have access to various information. Of course, I, I do read and follow closely Ukrainian sources. I uh, read like official statements, journalists, as well as uh, uh, since I know Russian, uh, I, I've been following uh, Russian news for, for many years and I know Russian propaganda and uh, I've been witnessing how different the reality is. And you can imagine that, uh, you know, being in Ukraine and uh, seeing like what, how Ukraine portrayed the, the, some, you know, some occasions or some uh, things that happened. Seeing like what Western media say about it and seeing how Russian propaganda portrays it, then you're you're amazed, wow, like it's, it's just complete difference. You see like, for example, again, you, you have like a white pawn right on the chessboard and you know that it, it is a white pawn but then you see that the the, the perspective of how people see this white pawn it, it's very different and, and that's why it's it's uh for me personally it's really uh how to say uh shocking to see uh, indeed how, how this propaganda in russia how, how effective it is because once you're told that this white pawn is a black queen and everybody tells it to you from from every uh, TV channel you, you you switch, then you begin believing it, and then you just don't have any critical thinking. So my general advice would be just not to focus on one source, but to to see various sources. And frankly, I've I've been seeing it here in US as well that people they just focus on like, hey, we're watching let's say Fox News or we are watching CNN. But my approach and my suggestion would be no, you. You guys better watch both of them. Then you watch other experts. Then you watch something else. Then definitely you need to listen to, to people who are uh, uh, for producing those news. But let's put it this way. So to, to hear what they say and what they think. And ultimately, you just make your decision on your own, who, who you believe in, what makes more sense to you, and so on. That That's actually how you improve in chess. Because, again, if we switch back to, to, to the chess topic, uh, you can read one book and it will tell you that, okay, this is the good opening. Then you open another book and it, it will tell you like, oh, that, that's a complete nonsense. Then once you turn on your uh, chess engine, it will say completely different story. But ultimately what makes you a professional, what makes you to understand things, it's, it's your critical thinking, what you believe in and uh, what you see when you look at the board. Uh, in, in terms of how to perceive the, what happens in Ukraine, definitely you, you, my suggestion would be to not limit yourself to one source. Uh, and uh, just just check as, as much as possible. If, if you have access to um, uh, international media, if you, you know other languages, that, that's that's really helpful. So you just check what, what people say. Also, be very critical to that. That's also very important because we see that, uh, and I've been facing it a lot. That you know, some people they 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 really trust whatever they they're, they're told, and uh, of course. Uh, it's been the case for, for all the times of uh, history, I guess, that, you know, the lies can be everywhere. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you need to, to trust whatever the first source you, you, you hear. Um, definitely be, be very critical because you would be amazed when you see Russian propaganda, you, you see the world completely different. And you're just like, wow, I mean, 
maybe maybe that that makes sense or maybe it doesn't then you begin also questioning yourself and that's why i'm saying that you know limiting yourself to one source it's it's quite dangerous because then you uh, you you might begin questioning some things like you know like a white pawn right you can say like well maybe i'm wrong <laughs> maybe indeed it's not a white pawn it's something else or something like that so yeah that's that's, that's again it's, it's a very general advice but it's it's I, I think it's it's very much needed so just just remember that you shouldn't focus you shouldn't limit yourself to one source I, uh, I love that that's the way you answer the question because uh, I always say that there's a critical thinking crisis underway uh, globally and uh, the ability to consume lots of information from different sources and then kind of synthesize it and think through it is a uh, important skill and probably one that uh, we, we should uh, develop much better in, our, in young people uh, around the world. Um, I, I've really enjoyed speaking with you uh, today and, and I think you're so fascinating in terms of all of your different interests and, and uh, the level of success that you've achieved. If people want to follow up with you or they want to uh, ask further questions or follow your uh, uh, chess career as it continues, um, where, where should we send them? Is Twitter or, or is there some other place that you think is best to, uh, to send people? Uh, Twitter is completely fine. Uh, also, I would suggest uh, checking uh, my uh, feed the website campaign, which is uh, fightforchess.com. Uh, though it's, it's not very active apparently after the elections, but still uh, there is a lot of information on, on, on myself, on, on the team that I uh, managed to build up in just you know a few months of, of this campaign. And I'm extremely proud to, and humbled to, to see so many experts uh, being by my side because we, we share the democratic values and everything. So uh, yeah, t- Twitter is, is perfectly fine, although uh, I'm, I'm more active on Facebook and, uh, where you can also find me by my First and last name. Uh, I also also prefer that's what I do in, in chess as well. I prefer to use my real name, uh, not like you know some uh, as, as in chess we, we we have a joke like it's like you know you, you play some uh, pe- pepperoni cheese or something some some nonsense uh, referring to that you you play a, a nickname instead of playing a real guy. Uh, so yeah, Facebook, Twitter, uh, again, fightforchess.com. Those are perfect sources to to reach out to me. I love it. Chess and uh, in the Bitcoin world, plenty of uh, pseudonymous names that uh, make you laugh is uh, is one definite similarity. Awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and I think people will get a, an absolute, uh, a lot of learning uh, and also a lot of interest uh, kind of out of your experience and, and our conversation today. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to transition into a brand new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to thecryptoacademy.io. My team and I have been working with the top HR teams in the industry to develop an intensive three-week training program with over 50 live events. We teach you exactly what you need to know to break into the industry, including live interview prep and resume review. Our students have been hired at over 75 of the world's best Bitcoin and crypto companies. Go to thecryptoacademy.io to learn more. Again, that's thecryptoacademy.io. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you share it with your friends, and I'll see you all for the next episode.